Hi, given the nature of this topic, please be advised that the discussion is of an adult nature and this episode is not suitable for minors. Thank you. Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. Hi, and welcome to Clinically Thinking. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Phil Watts to you. Dr. Phil Watts is an adjunct associate professor in clinical psychology and also endorsed in forensic psychology. He has over 30 years of experience working as a psychologist. Based in private practice in Western Australia, he is well known in both Australia and overseas for his work in a number of different areas of clinical and forensic application. His interests include addictions, court processes, ethical behaviour, best interest of children in family court, as well as internet pornography addiction and other sexual problems. He's the author of seven self-help or how-to books, including the very useful IP DIY Internet Pornography Do-It-Yourself Treatment Guide. And it's this particular area of internet pornography addiction that I'll be speaking with Phil about today. Phil, it's great to have you with us today. So to get us started, I'd like to hear a bit more about your background. Our listeners may not know that you're both clinically and forensically endorsed. Yeah, no, um, my history goes back some 30-odd years where um, I trained as a clinical psychologist. And um, when I graduated there was a a government freeze on positions, so I couldn't get a proper job. And the only job I could get was working in a juvenile detention centre. So I then ended up working with juvenile offenders. And if anyone's ever worked in a prison, uh, one of the things you'll find is there's this massive array of pathology. There's personality issues, there's control issues, there's mental illness, and that's just for staff. And then you get kids as well. So once you get into it, um, it sort of put me into this whole area of dealing with um, offenders. And then from there, I've always had an interest in um, offender behaviour. So um, also while working in the prison, uh, I dealt with juvenile sex offenders, which started interests in um, sexual issues. So from there, I've then um, worked both clinically and then went into private practice. And over time, my practice has become initially largely clinical, over time more and more forensic. So these days I'm predominantly forensic. So there would have been a time when you were mostly clinical with just a little bit of forensic, but now that mix is reversed? Absolutely. So these days um, it's a very small percentage of clinical. Um, I really like forensic. Um, I like assessing people. I like writing reports for court. Um, I do a lot of family court areas. Um, I do some pre-sentence work, some care and protection. But it's interesting, all of the areas tend to um, converge to the same point anyway um, because the clinical skills versus forensic skills, I think, overlap markedly. It seems you got into forensic work out of necessity. Being a new graduate, had to get a job somewhere, and you found yourself a home. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't have chosen to have done forensic work. I mean, these day and age, this day and age with programs like CSI, there's lots of people who um, want to be forensic psychologists. But I came at a day where we um, we barely even had a, a name for it. The college was incredibly small. Um, but like I say, once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. So that interface between uh, um, behaviour and law um, is, is fascinating. As someone who also works in this space, I find it interesting and it gives you opportunity to write as well in a way that Clinton Sykes often don't, you know, putting together reports and assessments and the like. Mm. Okay, let's look at this notion of internet pornography. How does a nice young clinical boy like you who found themselves in juvenile justice end up in this messy world of internet pornography? Okay, well, there's uh, um, and a number of factors which come into play which got me into it. But the most basic thing was I was around at the time where there were some very early cases of um, people getting charged for internet porn um, offences. So they were, and even around the time where the laws were passed for child exploitive material type offences. Um, and some of them came about because um, uh, police would do things like monitor and pretend to be um, a teenage girl oh, yes. and, and, and engage people. But I, I suddenly faced with these issues around not just sex offending behaviour, which I'd been involved with, but then um, porn use. So I then started off looking at um, um, how and why juvenile sex offenders might be different to um, um, other types of sex offenders because I found them a lot more normal. Um, mm. They didn't have the same sort of pathology. And interestingly, researchers such as Michael Seto in Canada years later have, have actually identified um, uh, doing research that um, juvenile offenders or adult offenders on child pornography are less antisocial than the normal sex offender population. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in that. Um, and then from there, um, uh, in my um, clinical practice, um, I had connections with church groups. I mean, I had men who were engaged in internet pornography, not child porn, just porn. So suddenly these two worlds collided between uh, very righteous, uh, people trying to live righteous religious lives, feeling guilty about what they're doing at one extreme, and then people who, both children and adults, who were um, looking at child porn for satisfaction. So suddenly I was faced with this dilemma. Why are they doing it? What's going on? Um, and, and then I ran a workshop because no one else was running workshops. So I had to then get up to speed to actually understand what the internet pornography was all about. And I think I had the pleasure of doing one of those workshops here in Adelaide about 2011. Yep, that, yeah. um, that would have probably been about my second round. Um, I probably <laughs> years even before that. Um, so I think it's about 15 years since I ran the first one. And one of the things which we'll probably touch on in, in a minute is it's amazing just how much the whole um, pornography use has changed in 15 years. And I wanted to hear about that, but if I could just take you back just for a moment because I'm not sure how, how, how many of our listeners will be aware of, of CETO's um, research uh, around risk and recidivism in adult child porn use. I wonder whether you could give us a little bit of a, a tinsy summary around that just so people get that, uh, that information clearly in their head about 
you know, the risks? Oh, absolutely. So Michael Cito um, is in Canada. And Canada, um, I'm not sure whether it's just um, the rights of prison have or whether it's how they structure their ethics, but they do some amazing sex offender research um, and they look at large groups of people. And he predominantly um, compared a group of um, uh, sex offenders who had committed real child offences, compared them with um, internet porn offenders, um, looked at measures um, of psychopathology. So did they show, you know, the psychopathic tendencies, this sort of antisocial personality disorder stuff, um, and also whether they showed pedophilic tendencies. Yeah. Um, and then he also followed them up five years, seven years, um, I think, you know, they may even have some of a 15-year sort of research out there now. Mm, mm. Um, and he looked to see who re-offended and how they re-offended. And what, we, what they basically found was um, if, um, well, first of all, what they found is on average the internet pornography people had much lower psychopathology than um, the, the um, sex offenders. Yeah. So, of course, we're talking about child porn here, yeah. aren't we, right? Child That's porn is um, people who abuse children. Yeah. So, and it makes sense. To actually um, step over the line and hurt a real child, uh, you have to have a way of turning off your emotion. Mm, and what, so what he thought, you know, one of the theories put forward was that he thought that people committed sex offences were a different category to people who were looking at the pornography because they weren't hurting a real child. Now, we know that children get exploited making it, but mm. they were avoiding dealing with real people by looking at the pornography. So he found that they were lower on um, antisocial. And then they looked at pedophilia. And if you were antisocial and pedophilic, you had the highest likelihood of um, committing an offence against a real child. If you just had the pedophilia but not the antisocial, you had the highest likelihood of reoffending on child pornography. So very interesting. Yeah. So just that little tidbit for people, so it's clear that there's not this direct link that I think sometimes a man on the street or the woman on the street might think there is between child porn use and contact offending, if you like, or even a notion of a link between. Uh, in, and I'm going to ask you this more specifically: a link between regular porn use, um, so illegal porn use and child attraction or child porn use. So I ask the question here, do you think um, that all child porn users, just for a moment, were, were initially internet? You know, is there a link between internet addiction and pornography use? Is there an in- a link between internet addiction and child pornography use? Is there some sort of slippery slope? Do you think is, is the research so that show that? Okay, well, what, what you've got um, is a very complicated question. <laughs> yeah, I guess sorry, it's a bit all over the place. So no, no, it's 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 a very important question because um, ultimately, um, I think when we talk about um, child porn, child pornography offenders or even sex offenders, we talk about them as a homogenous group. Yes. And what happens is they're actually a series of different. So there are different reasons why people commit offences. So if we step back and go look at um, pornography and its link to child sex offenders, I would argue that 
almost every person I've seen who would meet the definition of a pedophile charged with um, real contact offences against children look has looked at child pornography on the internet. Yes, I see. But there are lots of people, um, which Michael Cito's research shows, which look at child pornography and never touch a child. Yes, it doesn't go the other. It goes yeah. one way, but not the other, if you like. But then there's this other group, which is one of the more curious groups, which I've been really interested in, and that's a group of people who I think get attracted over time to doing things which are wrong through the mechanism of looking at porn. Now, to understand that, what I'm talking about is a process called desensitisation. So if you look at an image and you find it arousing and you look at it again, you find it arousing, by the time you've watched it 10 or 20 times, it's not arousing. So you've got two choices. <clears throat> you either look at another, another example of the same type of thing or you look for mm -hmm. something which is more arousing. Mm. And what we know is that taboo is arousing. So there's a group of people I've seen who go, I was never interested in children. Then I got onto the porn and um, after a while I got bored with mainstream porn and I looked at something younger or something popped up when I was doing a, a, a search on the internet. I started looking at it and I found that arousing. So they had this drift from adult porn to teen. Bear in mind that, the, that teen is one of the top ten search terms for all yes. pornography. Yes. Um, and then they get to young teen, and next minute they're looking at pubescent teen, mm -hmm. um, and they find that arousing. And we also know in terms of um, some of what we understand about why people have sexual attraction is if you pair an image with something which is arousing, it builds a connection. So after a while, they then get aroused and attracted to prepubescent porn. So I think there's a, there's a group of people who uh, pornography viewing makes them um, attracted to children. But they almost never go down that path to prepubescent children. They've gone down that path to early, early teens. So there's a, a bit of a, a boundary there between early teen but not so much prepubescent or younger children than that? On average. I mean, On average. like every rule, there's exceptions. exceptions. I think okay. those people who are attracted to children, usually of, of young children, the baby porn and so on, um, who are looking at it um, in a consistent fashion, finding it arousing, usually have come from a different pathway. They've already had an attraction. Um, they may have been abused as a child. There may be some sort of history which has led them there. But mm -hmm. I've seen people who report nothing um, abnormal, which, but it, it's just over the viewing gradually got conditioned to, to that younger age. Very interesting and very helpful, I think, to hear that very clearly put. If I may draw you back to um, the more legal pornography and the notion of internet addiction um, and our conversation around uh, the workshop that you started to run many years ago, I have to say that the one I attended in 2011 changed uh, the way I assessed people. So I, uh, before that, I had never seen anybody with an internet porn addiction that I knew of <laughs> but I, because <laughs> I didn't ask. Yeah. Um, but I had a client at that time who I uh, had such an addiction and that's why I went to your workshop 
And of course, he got the treatment. So you, your workshop introduced me to the tunnel, not notion which you talk about in your book, which we'll come to. Um, I would also change the way I interviewed. So I always ask, routinely now I asked a couple of questions about internet porn use, you know, is there any problem with your use? Is it controlling you? Just a couple of questions around that. And then I'm very often surprised at the answer that I get, just how many, often men, spend way more time using looking at pornography than they they think is helpful or it's impacting on their lives in certain ways. So I guess that's my observation. So thank you for that. But I'd be interested to know, about your thoughts on that and and also to talk to us about work workshops and the tunnel model that you presented then that I'm, I think is still quite current. It's a long question for you, Phil. Go, go yeah. answer any part of that. You just sort of asked me for a whole three-hour workshop. And I did. Question. Sorry about yeah. that. So let's, let's, and, but I think, I think it's an exciting question for lots of reasons. One is um, I think to try and understand what's going on, there's a whole set of, differences in how men and women, I think, view, view pornography, use pornography and understand it. And one of the factors is that, um, and one of the factors in running my workshop, you highlighted perfectly, and that is that on average, most women are psych uh, most psychologists are women. Men are only a small proportion of a profession. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I tried to encourage in that workshop was for women well, for therapists in general, but particularly um, female therapists, to go um, to ask about porn because a lot of men have a problem with it and they're not going to talk about it um, unless they're actually asked with it. Um, and the reason for that is if we go look at, if you like, even how the brain works, men on average are visually stimulated and then sexual images um, are really powerful in the brain. And I think they work in male brains very differently to women's brains. And as best as I can work out in the research, how men react to looking at porn and women look at porn for very different reasons. Although uh, we may come to it later, is I think teenagers, because of their early exposure to porn, I think teenage girls may be viewing porn differently. Um, but that's a, that's a different line to what I want to explain now. We'll come but, to that. So what I think happens is that for men, if you look at porn, look at sexual images, it's a really powerful distraction technique. So if you have got emotional problems happening, then looking at something which takes you away from your problems, which makes you feel good, which is powerful enough to take away all of the bad thoughts in your daily life, then it becomes quite addictive. So you keep going back to it. So where it gets complicated is that um, porn viewing uh, is, is really common in our society. Mm -hmm. um, studies vary in their estimates. It's, it's very hard to get good research because it's this taboo area. But um, anywhere from 60 to 95% of men view pornography. Is um, it a bit like that statistic around masturbating that... 95% of men will say they masturbate and the other 5% are lying. That That's correct, yep. <laughs> okay. so, that, so because it, what happens is we do have to separate viewing pornography for sexual reasons and then viewing pornography for emotional reasons. Okay. So lots of people, they don't have a sexual partner, they look at porn um, and it fills the sexual need. Now those ones, like I say, take a mine worker, WA we have lots of mine workers, but work FIFO. They're away for, for two weeks, they're back for two weeks. It goes up to the mine for two weeks, looks at porn while he's away, masturbates, 
and then comes back down, has a normal sex life with his partner. That's not an addiction. That's just looking at porn to serve a sexual need. Okay. And when he's looking at it, he might be looking at it 20 minutes, half an hour, not overly long typically. But you get the guy who goes away for two weeks, comes back, he's in a relationship, but he's still looking at the pornography, preferring to look at the pornography, and is probably looking at it for two or three or four hours at a time. Yeah. That's likely to be emotional problems. So what's going on there is that, and this is where we talk about the funnel and the tunnel. So in life, the funnel is you have a wide open experience of life and it comes down towards a point. And when you're out in life, there's all sorts of things which are happening. You've got relationships, you've got people, you've got finances, and you deal in the wide open world. Now, if you've got a lot of problems, that is an unpleasant place to be. So um, what happens is when you look at something uh, which can take you away from all of that, uh, whether it's pornography, whether it's computer games, um, whether it's gambling, whatever it is, um, you escape all of those wide world problems from the funnel and you end up in um, this little narrow space where you escape. And what pornography does is allows you to get into this little space. Computer games are very similar. But if you're looking at pornography, you're seeing these images, um, you're in what's called the tunnel. And the tunnel, um, people talk about altered states of consciousness. Time doesn't feel real. Yep. They escape from everything. They also separate from their sense of guilt or responsibility. And for as long as they're looking at the porn, the problems don't exist usually ejaculation flips them out of the tunnel back into the real world and then all the problems come back. Hence the delay, they're spending a longer, a long periods in the tunnel because it perpetuates that separation from the problems of life and everyday activities. Absolutely correct. So yeah. that's why it then cycles around and because um, sexual feelings are very arousing, I mean, in a normal sexual encounter, there's a, a point where you get towards climax where the rest of the world could disappear because it feels so nice. Yes. And then um, after climax, then you sort of reconnect. And if you've got a healthy, loving relationship, that connection builds a bond between a couple. But if you're doing it just with yourself, then there is no one to bond to apart from maybe the images you were looking at mm -hmm. or you then go into shame or guilt if you are one of those people. So it's a nice dopamine hit followed by perhaps the shame and the guilt. Correct. Now, just on that point, um, again, shame and guilt, it's a couple of the old-fashioned terms we use in psychology. One is called ego dystonic and the other is called ego syntonic. Ego dystonic is used to describe doing something which goes against the um, ego and ego syntonic was something which was in harmony with the ego. So if you, some people look at porn, they like looking at porn, they enjoy looking at porn, that's ego syntonic. Some people feel bad about it, shame about it, guilt about it, but they do it anyway. It's ego dystonic. Mm -hmm. So when people come into um, my practice and we're doing um, treatment, I'll see both ego dystonic and ego syntonic people. Yes. The ego syntonic is the typically, um, say, a guy in his early 30s, he's been married a couple of years, grown up on a reasonably consistent diet of looking at pornography. He's now in a stable relationship 
and his partner goes, I don't like this. I want a relationship with you. And um, he's been told to give it up. So it's almost like... Um, giving up his best friend. Yeah, giving up friend. his best friend. And he's also... It's almost like, you know, where prisoners get sent off to do treatment. Oh, yes, mandatory will. treatment. Mandatory. Yes. So yes. it's like a mandatory treatment, whereas the ego dystonic is a binge and purge. Um, so often, as I say, they may be religious people or they may have other reasons they feel bad about it. Child sex offenders often are ego dystonic. Some are ego syntonic. They don't like doing it, but it fills a need, so they go and do it. And when they finish it, it's shame and guilt. And lots of shame and guilt then makes you um, cycle around really fast. The ego syntonic, then they're not doing it, you know, they're trying to give it up because they should, whereas the other one has to give it up but doesn't want to. So they're, they're very different dynamics. And different responses to treatment? How, how do you find that? Different responses to treatment. Ego syntonic is easier to treat in a lot of respects. Um, it's a little bit like the standard addiction stuff, the motivational yeah. interviewing, what's for payoff, what's for trade-off, help them see the value. But ego dystonic, because there's a splitting, psychologically it's really hard to treat because they're coming in the office when they're in non-binge phase <laughs> and right. then in their home life they may, may go into the binge phase and it's very hard to access that state. So it's a bit like from a schema perspective, I'm wondering whether you get that sort of a healthy adult comes into session, but it's but it's the, the detached self-soother, if you like, that that wants to look at the porn. The detached self-soother is exactly the one who's looking at the porn. Right. And he and doesn't come he doesn't come to session very often. Not very often. <laughs> right. So you've got to, that's just tricky, a bit trickier, isn't it? You've got to get that coping mode around. Very interesting. Okay, I think we're referring to the book a little bit, so we should probably mention it. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about your wonderful IPDIY book that I have recently read and enjoyed? Yes, well, I've enjoyed an interesting reflection on oh. your book. Um, <laughs> IPDIY is um, Internet Pornography Do-It-Yourself Treatment Guide, not to be confused with Do-It-Yourself Guide. <laughs> um, <clears throat> <laughs> Part of what happens is that men want to try and find ways of fixing this. Now, if you're doing something illegal and you're talking to a psychologist and you have to report it, then you may not be fully open because they could be potentially charged. So mm-hmm. one I wanted to do was give a method for people um, to do things which could help them without having to confess to things in an office which may cause problems. So there's one level of it. Another level of it was just trying to integrate a whole array of tools which I've found useful um, and put it in some sort of structure to allow people to to deal with issues. And I find um, that when I tried to structure it, I tried to pick a title which wasn't going to jump up, you know, someone's walked, got the book and it's sort of like fix your own porn problem uh, <laughs> to then create all sorts of embarrassment. So I tried to make it a, look, a little bit more discreet. Um, <laughs> yes, and, you couldn't carry that around the train or on the bus. It could be tricky if, if the title was less discreet. It is. And, again, in the background of it, I've written um, half a dozen books now. That one I'd... Um, started writing it as a, um, a treatment guide for therapists. And it's one of those books where I got halfway through writing it where I go, 
No, I'm actually, that's not who I'm writing it for. I wanted to write it for, mm. for the men. So I then sort of restructured it. So it, it's got both the element of being a treatment book. So if you're a therapist, it's a useful read because it covers tools. But if you're a man um, with a problem with it, it's predominantly written for men. It helps him understand some of the dynamics of it. The tools, again, there's no reason why it shouldn't be useful for women, but you can only write <laughs> write for so many audiences. So Absolutely. I wrote it predominantly for the male population because they're the largest group with the addiction. And I've noticed in your book that there's a fair amount of talk about uh, religion and faith. And I was very curious. You've sort of mentioned, alluded to that a little bit already, but I've noticed, I noticed it when I was reading it that there was that kind of group you, you must work with at some level because... It's mentioned quite a bit in your book. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, what happens is um, if you look at the literature in America, the um, most a lot of the, the literatures actually come from Baptist church um, and other churches. Uh, pornography in religious groups is huge, and part of it is the prohibition on um, like porn is bad, uh, masturbation is bad then sets um, people up for really big issues with this mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of shame attached to it. So if you get known to work with um, porn groups, expect to get people from the religious groups coming to you um, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking Catholic, whether we're talking Mormon, whether we're talking um, Anglican, Baptist. Baptist. Doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter because... They all carrying some sense of shame or guilt. So I, I actually remember. I think uh, in the book you talk about masturbation as being part of the treatment, actually, uh, treatment protocol. And there's a, several different protocols to use, but there's. And I love the term. One of the old-fashioned techniques I read about when I was a young psychologist is called orgasmic reconstruction or <laughs> orgasmic restructuring, where essentially it's a behavioural technique where if you pair what you're thinking about um, at orgasm, um, those feelings become really quite intense. So just like I was saying earlier, people can drift by looking at adolescent porn and masturbating and experiencing orgasm. Um, The same is true if you want to try and untrain it. You have to then consciously repair some of those thoughts. So what I've tried to do when I wrote the book was sort of go, um, and and if you're a religious, <laughs> here's some things for you to think about because some people are, some people aren't, but it's a big area of issue. Excellent. In your book, I noticed, it's written a few years ago now, so I wondered whether you might be able to speak more about the, the emergent evidence for the use of various drugs um, to block do- dopamine in porn users. You mentioned that, you know, in your book. Has there been any development in that area that you're aware of? Yeah, there's, um, again, if you look at things like PET scans, they're finding different areas of the brain which light up, which include the dopamine areas. Uh, also, some of the studies show things like the um, um, anterior singlet, which is the OCD part of the brain, light up. With the treatment, there's still not much in the way of systematic research around medication. But what I can say is that often these problems have comorbid patterns. So um, depression is very common with um, significant um, porn use. So if you use things like um, serotonin-based antidepressants, they can be helpful. 
one of the things I also discuss in the book is some of, some of the common side effects with the serotonin type medications are loss of libido. Now, for some people, that can actually be really helpful. Okay, so yes. you've got someone who's got a child porn addiction, putting them on an antidepressant to deal with their depression and lowers um, libido can be quite helpful. But the interesting thing is that antidepressants don't work very well um, on dopamine which is why um, someone who's a meth addict, um, antidepressants tend to be contraindicated because they don't, they don't work on the depression caused by low dopamine. Mm. So I think that things like antidepressants are helpful, but I think a large part of it is it's a behavioural um, addiction rather than a chemical addiction. So while brain chemistry is impacted, I don't think we'll get a pill which is going to stop it <laughs> um, as I say, antidepressants can be helpful. Anti-anxieties may have a place. There's been a little bit of work, um, and again, it's still not a lot of work, but they've done some of the um, things like even methadone they've tried with porn addicts with mixed success. So, so the, the most of the work is done at the behavioural level, and I noticed that you're, you prefer an abstinence and avoidance model versus a a control model in treating internet porn addiction, is that right? Yes. What happens is we go back to our model of the two guys who work um, fly in, fly out. Um, the first guy, if he's watching too much porn, controlled management of it is probably helpful. But the other person, especially the ego dystonic type patterns, as soon as they see some porn, it locks them into the tunnel, um, they split and it's very hard to treat. Um where probably the area where I've found the uh, most interesting success in recent years is EMDR. Oh, that's um, interesting. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, EMDR is a. It was designed as a trauma technique, and um, originally with conditions such as Vietnam veterans, rape victims, and people like that. But what what I've found with EMDR, and it's matching up in the research. <clears throat> over time is if somebody has a thought and that thought has strong emotion attached to it, EMDR will pull the emotion down. So, and that's where we can bring the split off guy into the office, not just the, the healthy balanced guy. Because if you can get them to think about last week when they had the urge, um, yes. can they feel it in their body? How much do they think about it? and do EMDR, it tends to pull both the urge down so that they get less urge. And the other thing it often does is goes through some of the um, schema networks, if you like, in the brain and tracks back sometimes to early memories, early first time they did porn, um, and some mm. of that whole it seems to unpack some of, that, if you like, the underlying psych psychology of it. Very interesting. So what you talk about a little bit, I've got a bunch of questions now, but um, so is it the standard protocol where you use an anxiety protocol or if you, if you, with the EMDR or have you come up with something of your own construction? Um, well, there's two parts to that. One is I tend to use my own construction, but there are now um, in some of the EMDR books they have treatment mm. protocols now for pornography. So um, I have a couple of colleagues who are right up with current EMDR training and so on, and they say they're actually some identified protocols. Um, I was trying. Well, we'll look those up. We'll look those up and pop them on the um, on the clinically thinking Facebook um, page. I think is it in the Dijon book? Is that? 
I'm not. Ex- right I'm not exactly sure. I haven't. No. Uh, I, I. I can see if I can track it down for you. Yeah, that's totally um, great. But um, I, I was trained by Francine Shapiro in 1993 when she first came out. Oh, super jealous. And um, um, since then, the the protocols got a lot more um, standardised, um, and I think there's a benefit in that. But the underlying principle of it is. Um, um, if, if you see a strong emotion attached to a thought, um, do EMDR with it, uh, it works um, and it lowers the emotion. And that's the essence of a protocol. I mean, Which relates, yeah, that is, it's great to think about the essence of a protocol rather than being slavish to the exact structure. duplication of the structure. Yeah, I, I, the, um, the, the essence of it is so much more important, I would agree. with. And it reminds me of something you say in your book where you talk um, about, I think you talk about a client who, <laughs> who was a, look, looked at images of women with big breasts and then you found some, got him to find some link because there was some sort of deeper meaning, you know, and I was interested in that because it sort of had a bit of a dynamic feel to it or a, um, a sort of a schema-driven feel to it, which was a bit in contrast to your CBT approach. Yeah, well, one of the... Really interesting things about um, sexual attraction, and it's not just to do with pornography, but the whole the whole issue is why do people get attracted to who they get attracted to? We've been studying it since the days of Freud, but I don't think anyone really has a irrefutable, well-established theory. We have lots of possibilities as to why somebody ends up attracted to who they're attracted to. Um, and, you know, there's the conditioning type theories and there's the psychodynamic type theories and so on. What about just plain old chemistry, Phil? Is that a bit... Well, plain know, old chemistry, but I was thinking like, I mean... <laughs> not a psychologist, sorry. 30, 30 year old, yeah, I mean, chemistry has a place. I mean, I do think that, you know, there's certain things which um, do attract. But I also think in chemistry, you know, one of my other books is How to Find Love and Not a Psycho. Oh, yes, um, very important. And um, Watch out for chemistry. It's a bad indicator, isn't it? It's sometimes? a bad indicator. But <laughs> sometimes chemistry, you know, people sometimes look at that. The chemistry there comes back to things like unresolved issues from the past. It's unconscious attraction. So it's psychodynamic. So in, in my book, um, I think, you know, looking at the behavioural aspects is really important, but sometimes um, I think that you have to go way back historically as well to see if there are particular reasons why particular things have become relevant. And it's possible, that, thinking about your EMDR reference, that if you use a current trigger, if you like, or a current or recent use, so you're talking about EMDR, that that could then bring up uh, past experiences, past traumas or experiences. But I was also thinking, is there a possibility of using imagery restricting with certain uh, egodystonic users of porn where there might be uh, a childhood-linked, a distressing event or something that has set them on this particular path of attraction and use? I'm not sure, just ideas. At the end of the day, I think... We need to look at it from as many angles as possible. And I do think that some early scripting becomes relevant. So Mm. there are different processes which shape our sexuality. So some are developmental, so it's linked in past. Some are trauma. Um, So, um, yeah, what what people um, experience does shape how they respond to these things. And then people self-condition once they're on, on the net. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is, you know, just using really good clinical skills to 
find ways to address the problem, being creative, you know, embedded in theory and understanding the, the models for treatment, but 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 being uh, sort of flexible and creative in the way we might approach. Mm, absolutely. So what I tried to do in my book was not have a single scripted approach, yeah, but sort of yeah. go, if this, try this, and if that, try that. You're listening to Clinically Thinking. And now a word from our sponsor. If you're an Australian clinical psychologist, the APS College of Clinical Psychologists is here to support you and help grow your skills. The college is the biggest group representing ClinSykes in the country and is active in influencing health policy at both state and federal levels. Members enjoy cheaper or free access to a wealth of CPD opportunities, including webinars, seminars, conferences, training, and online peer supervision groups, as well as the opportunity to network and collaborate with the most experienced ClinSykes in Australia. Join us. Together, our voice is stronger, and we can help bring about better mental health outcomes for all Australians. To find out more about the college, visit the APS website or click the link on the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. And now, back to the show. It also links to um, probably something I really would like to share in this podcast is one of the concerns I have about the rising generation and pornography of what it's doing to people's brains. Fantastic. Let's go there. So um, if we go on a journey back in time, when I was a teenager growing up, if I wanted to look at porn, we had no internet. So I either had to get soft porn, which is typically, you know, find it in your father's briefcase or his bottom drawer or something. Yeah, or target. Um, yeah, target so if I was 18 or whatever, I could have got mail-ordered videos from Canberra. So porn was very limited, it was very restricted, and it was quite soft. Now, when I started in the whole juvenile justice area and started to become interested in this area, the only porn people watched online was um, pictures. So anyone you were treating, it was what images were they looking at because videos were too big to download. So now what is available is um, completely video-based. So um, almost no one do I see these days are looking at photos. So the porn I saw as a teenager from Dad's Playboy and Penthouse magazines was um, restricted to breasts and a little bit of pubic hair um, and very little else. Mm. Whereas now a teenager um, will be looking can look at the hardest core porn um, and those videos. Um, oh, again, if you got the video from Canberra, it had a story. It was a pretty yeah. big story. Pool cleaner coming around and a clean your pool. <laughs> Let's go do stuff. But it had a story. There's a relationship and sex. Even though they have no pool. There's no pool, but they're going to pool cleaner comes around. Absolutely. Where we there we go, you know. But <laughs> so now uh, most porn has no story. So it's really just a collection of sexual acts. And they try and cover as many different possibilities as possible in the paid movies. So uh, you have anal, you have oral, you have a bunch of different positions for Mm. that 20-minute video. Mm. Um, And the latest trend now is not even using um, actresses. Pornhub, which is one of the biggest porn sites, 
they now have Model Hub, where you basically make your own videos, you can upload it, and the top 10 Pornhub models are getting 230 million hits in a year. Good grief. And, and they might get um, a cent or two for each hit, so they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, not, alone, not mentioning selling, uh, making their videos available for download. And so stuff. they make their own of themselves, yeah. is that right? Correct, yep. And upload them and for and people to buy. Them. Yep. So what it's doing is that there is no filter, there's no story, there's a whole array of absolutely anything you can get. So you now take the typical teenager on the internet, the age now in which um, the first viewing is taking place is under 12. They're seeing hardest core porn in raw detail um, beginning from under 12 um, and certainly something like 70% of kids at 15 have seen hardcore porn. They've all got a smartphone and there it is in their hands ready to, you know, if they don't look it up themselves, the kid, another kid's going to show them something. Correct. So, what do you think, and I know you're going to tell me this, is happening to the, for a start, we started the impact of the, on the brains of young, young children who are looking at this stuff. Well, what it does, um, I think, is it completely distorts sexuality. So now you get the 17 or 18-year-old, 16-year-old wanting to have their first sexual encounter with a girlfriend and they're wanting to do anal sex and stuff like that, which was something which probably wouldn't have ever even been considered. Mm. Um, so she is now faced with, um, do I comply, even though I don't, you know, it's not my thing, or mm. she's been watching it and she thinks that's her expectation. Mm. So it's put kids into a whole array of very serious and sexual behaviours, and that's if they're just accessing the, what's called m- mainstream pornography. There is no filter on hardcore. As I, when I grew up, there was softcore. Hardcore was hard to come by and you had to work hard to get it. And now um, there's no filter between the two. Now there's no filter. So it's all hardcore from a very young age. So I think it alters brain pathways. I think it alters sexual attraction. Um, I think it alters how people are going to respond sexually. Just things like, um, again, on Pornhub, two or three of the most common search terms in the last few years have been words like Fortnite. Oh, yes. Um, tell us listeners about that. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, um, so who, who's going to search Fortnite? Yeah. <laughs> Fortnite yeah. Yes. Looking for people either in um, anime, so cartoon-type versions, or real people doing cosplay dressed up as, pretending to be people like, you know, the, you know, the sexualised characters they're doing on their computer games, but doing real sex. So it's very sneaky of the, those selling, the running businesses and selling pornography, a way, finding a way to get our children uh, into watching this kind of material. Um, what do you think about the expectations because you're talking about young women, young men um, wanting to experiment with sex and then it seems that both have a level of expectation of what, you know, what's expected of them to, in, their, in their sexual performance that neither of them necessarily want. Well, it's not only something that neither of them want, it's also stuff which is probably not even possible. Right, how do you mean? <laughs> um, it's it's like, not physically possible. Yeah, I mean, they watch a 20-minute movie, but that, that movie you know, could have been made over um, several days. They're watching people do a whole, you know, absolutely a whole array of things which 
you know, we've probably taken um, Viagra or had an injection to, to make the erection last that long. Um, it's fake sex, but they think it's real and then they think they have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, some of the ch- trends in, uh, in the whole pornography marketing is they used to talk about the cum shot being the money shot. Yes. So if you have one cum, cum shot, you've got one money shot. So they now have two or three. So things like um, threesomes, you know, one lady, two men, or gangbang, mm. or things like that. So now you end up with um, teenage boys being role modelled, you know, essentially gang rape. Um, so, you know, I think we'll see an increase in a whole lot of illegal type things, which they don't even know is illegal. How do you mean? Um so two 17-year-old boys take their 16, 16-year-old girl to the back shed and both try and have sex with her. And next minute they're charged with a very serious rape charge and all they're doing was acting out what they see the girl enjoying on a movie. Oh, very concerning. So, so, Phil, where do you think intimacy is in all this? Well, that's exactly the problem. There is no intimacy left in this. All we're doing is seeing images of sex so there is no relationship, there is no connection, there is no intimacy, um, and um, there is no relationship, and that's the problem with this. You said that many of those with internet porn addiction are men, and uh, women less so, and you said these days there's no stories. Is there any, are there any stories that are written specifically for women? Yeah, what happens is um, one of the really powerful things of the internet is they can see what gets a hit. So if it works, they increase it. If it doesn't, they don't. And um, they've found that they're marketing now for uh, pornography for women. Uh, there are websites for pornography for women. And those typically tend to try and have a story. Um, but they're still in small supply, and I'm not sure how much women are looking at them. Historically, what would happen is men looked at porn for on their own. Women, on average, were looking at porn with their partner, and they were doing it as part of foreplay or part of intimacy. Mm-hmm. That the what evidence is out there seems to be that's changing. There's more women looking at pornography on on their own for their own. Um, pleasure and satisfaction um, but we still are marketing predominantly pornography for men very interesting is there anything else that you think would be really helpful for our listeners to to hear about yeah well what i'd say is going back to one of the things we started on is that um, when somebody comes through the door and um, as, as a therapist i'm treating them I, I will typically ask, and what about porn? Because um, often for men, it's depression and porn or a uh, drug addiction and porn. These things tend to go as groups, not on their own. Mm. So for a lot of clinical psychologists or psychologists um, is, is a bit older on average and is female, these are whole alien concepts. But if you're not frightened to ask, you'll actually find there's a whole area where you can help people successfully deal with their issues. So one of the take-home messages would be definitely just ask the questions, and I have to say thanks to you, I do that, and recently asked it maybe six months ago with a particular client um, about his porn use uh, and had a hunch it had gone up. He described, you know, his relationship was in trouble, and I said, how much porn are you watching? And uh, he said, a lot. 
I said, maybe we should address that first. And it wasn't at the addiction level. It was just become a bad habit, if you like. And so he addressed that pretty quickly. And the relationship improved, his depression levels decreased, and we were able to refocus on the actual, the other issues, which were the depression. So would that, would you think that's vaguely typical? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're describing is exactly the, the, the heart of the issue, is that it's a problem, but it's a coping strategy. So underneath, underneath all of this, there is issues where somebody is addicted, it's no longer about sex. It's about trying to deal with their emotions. So it's like any coping strategy. If you just take the strategy away without giving anything in its place, they're going to relapse. Um, if you don't address it, then um, if you stop one thing, they'll be doing something else to try and cope. So if you haven't said, what about porn? If you stop them doing something, um, they'll probably increase their porn use. So Mm. unless you understand it, unless you have it on the table, unless you try and dissect it, then um, you, you won't fully help the client. So just in wrapping up, can you just tell listeners about your, uh, your books? Yeah, I have varied interests. I'm fascinated about all aspects of of life. So addictions in particular. So I've got a book on gambling. It's called Casino Life. And it's, it's looking at what people get out of that culture. So it's not about how to gamble. It's about understanding it. Um, I recently wrote the book I said earlier, um, How to Find Love and Not a Psycho. Um, That's looking at relationship choices, how to choose a bad partner, um, preferably not. um, (laughs) Um, I've also got um, Surviving the Witness Box. I also do workshop, you know, run workshops and there's books on giving evidence and ethical behaviour and so forth, which... My website is mindstatepsychology.com.au. You're welcome to follow up with um, information from there. Uh, yes, I've read that, that Witness Box book. Excellent reading. Uh, very useful, I must say. We will put all those books up on the uh, Facebook page for listeners who are interested in uh, attending your workshops or and or reading your books. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been um, fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's always good to talk about um, things which are going to be clinically relevant, uh, especially these areas, because they often don't get talked about. They get laughed about, joked about, but not seriously considered. So thank you. You're welcome. Bye for now. I hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening.